the ages, this happened in actual history, where men and women were there to witness it, to be interviewed, to be cross-examined. These verses read a lot like the opening of John's first letter. Do you remember there, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, John could say. We were there, we, we saw it, we touched it, we, we heard what he had to say. To quote Dale Ralph Davis, there is a having happenedness about the incarnation. When Jesus came in the flesh, there were real people who really saw the glory of God in him. But what did they see? Well, they saw the glory of God's power. They saw it in his miracles. They, they saw uh, the things that he did. In fact, if you trace this language of glory through the, the, uh, the gospel of John, the very next place that it shows up is, is in a wedding feast where it's being poured out by the gallonful. John chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. He showed it off. He revealed it for everybody who was there to see, and they saw the glory of God's power in Jesus. That's one of the ways that Jesus revealed the glory of God. It was in the things that he did. It was, it was in the, the lepers that he healed. It was it was him coming into creation, revealing divine power by, by walking on water, by raising the dead, by healing diseases immediately. He did it by performing miracles that had, that had no earthly explanation. And then when the boats were incredibly filled with fish to the point of sinking, when eyes were opened for the very first time, people would drop to their knees and proclaim that they were seeing the glory of God in Jesus and his power. That's one of the ways that Jesus manifested God's glory, but actually, according to John, it seems, that's not the most impressive way. It's not, what he's, it's not what he's focused on here. Actually, John is more focused on the way that Jesus revealed the glory of God's character. Take a look in verse 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's so important that he repeats it in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now don't miss the importance of that phrase there, full of grace and truth. We could miss it because those are typical Bible words. This isn't one of those, those times that will say, this is the only place that this appears anywhere in Scripture. So page. No, no, no. It shows up everywhere. Grace and truth, it's all over Scripture. But actually, <laughs> nowhere else in the New Testament is it put together in this way. This phrase, full of, of grace and truth, or even grace and truth, those concepts together spoken of the same person, uh, united together in the same uh, moment, it, it doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. But for John, grace and truth are the combined summary of God's glory revealed in Jesus. They are the, the cumulative impression that Jesus left on everyone who met him. Not just that he was gracious, not, not that he was a gracious person, not that he was kind and, uh, and forbearing, not that he was just a gracious person, and not only even that he just spoke true words, or he was a really faithful guy, he was the kind of person you could depend on. No, he was himself, grace, grace and truth embodied. Imagine somebody who's been eating vanilla-flavored desserts all their life. 
And the only kind of vanilla they've ever had is that terrible artificial flavored stuff that tastes a little bit astringent and it's just a little bit off. But it's all they know. It's all they've, it's all they've tried. And then finally, maybe at the age of 50, somewhere in midlife, they have their first taste of a real homemade gourmet vanilla bean gelato. And it is rich and it is luscious and it is exactly what all of those imitations had been pointing to and they could never quite attain. And suddenly the light goes on and they say, this is what it was about. That's the point here. That's what, what John is saying. It's almost as though it wasn't until Jesus began his ministry that people realized, you know, every, every gracious act I've ever seen, every true word I've ever heard, it was all pointing to him. He's the real deal. That's the point of this phrase, full of grace and truth. And it doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament, but it does in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, it shows up all over the place, slightly different form and something uh, maybe changed in the translation. But in the Old Testament, this is God's self-declaration of his own character. Do you remember that request that, that Moses made. It was after the incident with the golden calf and Moses went to the Lord and he was looking for reassurance that God was going to put away the sin of his people and he made a request. He pleaded with God that he would be allowed to see God's glory and, and he couldn't. Impossible request. The best that could, could be done is that the Lord would, would hide him there in the cleft of the rock. His, his glory would pass by and then Moses would see something almost of the afterglow. It says his back, but God does not have a body like men. And so he, he sees maybe the afterglow. Maybe that's a way to, to think of it. And, and he hears a description. That's pretty good. He hears God describing his own character to Moses. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the phrase. Shows up all over the psalm. Shows up all throughout the prophets. This is who God has said he is. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And John picks up that phrase and he translates it into Greek and he applies it to Jesus. What is the Lord like? He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What is Jesus like? He's full of grace and truth. They're the same concepts, it's the same idea, and now it's being applied to Jesus. He was like nobody they had ever seen before. His character was perfect, and it was clean, and it was gracious. His words were unvarnished, unbreakable truth. He spoke with authority and compassion of God Almighty. And people saw it. And so on the night of his betrayal, when Philip raised his voice and feebly asked, Lord, show us the Father. That's enough. Just, just show us the Father. What does Jesus reply? John 14, verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It doesn't mean that the Father is the Son, or the Son is the Father, or the Son is, is the Father in a different mode of existence, or some, some strange thing, some heretical thing like that. No, it means, it means Jesus shows us what God is like. So that when, when your children come to you and they say, 
they say, Mommy, what is, what is God like? I say, well, he's a lot like Jesus, actually. You see, the glory of God's character in the face of Jesus Christ. He was, he was the perfect embodiment of the character of God. He was the glory of the only Son from the Father, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. But perhaps the most profound aspect of Christ's glory is the way that his first witnesses saw in him the glory of God's salvation. Now we expect this this word glory, we expect it to be all over the place in in miracles and transfigurations and and heavenly power from God. The the very word glory actually carries an idea, the sense of weightiness, a kind of of gravitas that makes us feel small by comparison, that makes sinners want to hide their faces before a holy God. It it, it bears down on us, this, this glory of God. We expect it to be miraculous and radiant. But Jesus takes our breath away because he he takes this language of glory and he applies it to the moment of his greatest human weakness. And you can, again, you can can track this language throughout the the gospel of John and there's glory in these miracles and these signs that he's giving us. And and there's also this hour that is waiting that, that hasn't yet been fulfilled. And it's not until John chapter 13. Immediately after Judas leaves the upper room, he's going to, to betray Jesus into the hands of the priests. He's already arranged that he's, he's now just going, in a sense, to sign on the dotted line and to lead them to where he will be. And Jesus turns to the remaining disciples and he says, now. In Cana of Galilee, when he first showed his glory, he said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Not yet. The hour is not yet here. When he was being betrayed, he says, now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. That's where it was all headed. All the glory of his power, all the the grace of his character, it was leading to the moment that the hour would be fulfilled, that Jesus would lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. And imagine, of all the witnesses, of all the disciples who were there with Jesus, it's John. It's John who remained at the foot of the cross and and stayed there to receive Mary. It's John who was there while the other disciples went and and they went into hiding. It is John who outran Peter and got to the tomb first and poked his head in to see if it was actually true. It's John who tells us, we have seen his glory. The glory of God's salvation. Embodied, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended to the Lord. John was there to see it. He doesn't want you to tuck this away and wait for another year. He doesn't want it to be something that you fit inside of a nice, neat little tote and put over on the side with all of your other doctrines that you don't access or use very much. When Jesus came into the world, he revealed God's glory to his witnesses. That's the first layer of the text. If the story ends there, we actually have quite a problem, though, don't we? The problem is, how could, could a person, how could a, a man, even a glorious man, who, who lived several millennia ago, what could he offer us if we haven't seen him as his witnesses saw him? 
It's all well and good for John to report the facts. It's all, it's all well and good for others to have seen it, but if that is where it stops, what are we to make of it? Should we merely be impressed that such a person existed? Should we content ourselves, as many people content themselves, with, with merely the, uh, the glory of his moral teaching? Is that all it's about? Does the glory of his person fade throughout the centuries? Is the story and the doctrine of the incarnation, is it something that's yellowing in our, in our doctrine along with the pages of our Bibles through misuse? Is it the kind of thing that we hold and we bring out only to make sure that we don't feel too materialistic on December 25th? Writing about a century ago, J. Gresham Machen put it bluntly. He said, how can we span the gulf of time that separates us from Jesus? Then he goes through and he explores some of these philosophical uh, attempts to do just that. He, he explores some of these imaginative or, or highly critical ways to do that. Maybe we need to return to the, the Jesus of history, and, and maybe we need to figure out all of these, these other things, and maybe we need to just say that it's our religious imagination, and we can be content with the memory of these things. He explores some of these, these more critical options, and then he concludes that none of them are sufficient to help us. He says, let us not deceive ourselves. A mere Jewish teacher of the first century can never satisfy the longing of our souls. Clothe him with all the art of modern research. Throw upon him the warm, deceptive calcium light of modern sentimentality. And despite it all, common sense will come to rights again. Our brief hour of self-deception, as though we had been with Jesus. It will wreak upon us the revenge of hopeless disillusionment. And to put it more simply, if the glory of Jesus was available only for 33 years in Palestine, we are sunk. If that's where it ends, we've got a problem. But according to John, that's not where it stops. Take a look in verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received. Grace upon grace. Now when he says we all, who is, who is John talking about? He's talking about we all. He's talking about us, right? He's talking about we Christians down throughout the centuries of separation from, from time and history and space and, and all of the other things that separate us from that time that Jesus was, was walking and living and ministering in that place, in the corner of a Roman Empire. We all, we who have not seen Jesus with our bodily eyes, who have nevertheless seen him with the eyes of faith, we all who have believed that the Lord of glory is still alive today, that from heaven he still reveals God's glory to his saints. That's who he means when he says we all. And that, by the way, is the second layer of this text. That Christ reveals God's glory to his saints. He revealed God's glory to his witnesses. He still reveals God's glory to his saints. That means that this passage is not just about something that happened long ago. It's, it's about something that still happens by the work of the Holy Spirit in God's people. Notice the language of receiving in that verse, verse 16. From, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is an intentional word choice. This is meant to remind us of something that he has just written a few verses before, verse 10. He was in the world, 
And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Well, there's something amazing. There are people who were eyewitnesses. And they saw, and they heard, they touched, they were aware, they had it right before their eyes, and yet they had no idea who he was. They never saw even even a a tiny sparkle of the glory that radiated through his, his wonderful person. They didn't get it. They didn't receive him. They never caught a glimpse of the glory that John says, we have received. Why not? Because they saw him, but they didn't see him by faith. Verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Notice the language there. He doesn't say that those who who received something about him or just a message. It's those who received him. What do we do when we believe in his name? We receive Jesus. Not just his gifts, right? Not just his salvation. When we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, he doesn't say, good, I have a Christmas gift for you. It's salvation, it's yours. If you need me, I'll be over here. When we believe in his name, we receive him and all of his righteousness and all of his sanctification and all of his goodness and all of his glory Machen concludes it is faith in him and what he has done that makes Jesus ours we receive him and that's the answer to our problem of our problem of historical displacement this is how we bridge the gulf of these centuries Spanned by believing that he's the one who came and died and rose again. And he makes us a part of his family. Actually, Christ's eyewitnesses tell us the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. One of Jesus' eyewitnesses writes this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Where does the glory come from? It's not ours. But when we believe in him, we we receive him. He makes his glory known to us. He says you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Dear Christians, don't worry that you haven't seen Jesus as John saw Jesus. Look to him with eyes of faith. You still see there his power and his character, the abundant grace of God's salvation. Christ has revealed his glory to his witnesses, but he still reveals his glory to his saints. The final layer of this passage teaches us that Christ will reveal God's glory for eternity. Take a look at verse 18 where we find here a problem. A problem that the Son came to solve. John tells us no one has ever seen God. He means, of course, no one has has seen God in his essence. No one has seen God as he exists in himself. There are people that the Bible says got to see the miracles of God, people who, who heard the voice of God booming out of the clouds, saw the, saw the darkness and, and the lightning strikes and heard the trumpets at Mount Sinai. There are, there are people 
we find in the Bible, who, who got to see the Lord veiled in a temporary human form almost. Think of Gideon, think of Joshua, think of Manoah, the, the father of Samson. Think of Abraham entertaining his guests there. Think of Jacob wrestling with the angel all night long. And then in, in Exodus 33, we, we find something amazing. 33 verse 11, we're told that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Face to face, as a man speaks to his friend, but we have to understand the language there. It must be a metaphor for closeness and not a statement of complete access. It must be that because in the very next section, that's when Moses makes his request to see the glory of the Lord. And the Lord says, man cannot see my face and live. It is impossible. And so it's giving us an idea here. How do we, how do we talk to one another? There's a closeness there, but, but still John's word holds true. And if you look at all of the other uh, supposed exceptions in the Old Testament, they're always qualified in some way. No one has seen God, he tells us. There are moments in the history of God's people where where some saints are allowed to, to reach out and, and touch the hem of the garment of the glory of God, but no one is able to see him in his fullness. Now, you're a good church full of Calvinists, right? And you, you can think of at least one reason why man cannot see God in his fullness, as he is in his essence, right? It's because of our sin. Because God is holy and we are sinful, and that which is sinful cannot be in the presence of that which is holy without being consumed. Of course no one has seen God. And that's true. And that's why Jesus came to take our sin upon himself so that we can have access through one spirit to the Father, we read in Ephesians. Actually, there's something else that also keeps us from seeing God as he is in his fullness. And the something that keeps us from seeing God in the fullness of his glory is Finitude. Finitude. It is the fact that God is infinite, utterly, indescribably, incomprehensibly infinite, without bounds. His grace and his glory, his mercy and his justice have no limit. No line can fathom the depth of his perfect love. His works cannot be counted. He is infinite, and by comparison we are Hopelessly finite. Hopelessly finite. Our lives are a mist that passes with the rising of the sun. Our intellect is a leaky teaspoon next to an immeasurable ocean of God's knowledge. And that which is finite, you and me, we, we cannot comprehend God in his fullness. We cannot comprehend infinity. We like to think that we can. We, we tell ourselves that we can, we can understand it at least as a concept, right? And so we even, we even have a symbol for it. It's that little squiggly thing that looks like a sideways eight. And because we've reduced it to a character, we say, oh, I know how to deal with this. It's infinity, something that goes on forever and ever in every direction and can't be contained. I've got it. Yep, good. But we can't. <laughs> how in, in the ever-expanding, limitless universe... Could that which is finite understand that which is infinite? Can an earthworm comprehend the Boston Marathon? Can a mole comprehend the aeronautical engineering that keeps a jet plane full of passengers in the air flying around the world? If those things are possible, they are magnitudes easier 
than that which is finite, trying to understand God's infinitude. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways, his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. No one has ever seen God. It's impossible to see him in his fullness. Even if we could, even if we could stand it, we can't take it in, <laughs> right? Our eyes are too finite to see him. Our ears are too finite to hear him. Our thoughts are too finite to comprehend him. Our words are too finite to describe him. But there is a word that is infinite. There is a word that is eternal. It's not from us, but it's from him. There is a word that was in the beginning with God. There is a word that is God. And this eternal word, the only begotten Son from the Father, he has come to make God known in Jesus Christ. Not just to do it for his saints in a single century. Not just to do it for a, a few hundred years for those who are down through the pages and the, and the annals of church history. The word has come to make God's glory known for eternity. But in order to do that, he had to take on the mantle of human flesh. And he did. He became flesh and he, he made his dwelling among us. That word there, dwelling. He dwelt among us. That word in verse 14, that's another throwback to the time of Moses and the Exodus. The time in the wilderness wanderings. That is a very rare word in the New Testament. John's the only one who uses it. And it's a, it's a verb that means to set up a tent, to tabernacle. It actually would be better translated, set up his tent. The word became flesh and he set up his tent among us. He came to tabernacle with us. He came to lead us through our wanderings, to lead us to the Father. He came to secure our access to himself. And this word, tabernacle, it's so rare in the New Testament that, that it shows up only in one other book. Three times in the book of Revelation, John uses this same word to speak of God's eternal dwelling with his people. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Making all things new for a dwelling place. Have you ever wondered why God's blessing for his people is eternal life in his presence? Have you ever wondered why he doesn't plan simply to give us a, a few more hundred years to walk and to worship before his throne? Why Christ entered our finitude to conquer our death, to promise us eternity? Why is that the reward for God's saints? probably many good answers to that. And, and the deepest of the reasons are, are hidden in God's inscrutable ways, inside the very mind of God. But one good reason 
is that eternity is how long it's going to take. Eternity is, is how long it's going to take for God to shower on his children the fullness of his love. Because it will never be exhausted. It has no bounds. It has no limits. That as we, as we begin to see it like, like a, a gem, like a diamond against the backdrop of, of darkness, and you turn it, and the light catches, and you see a different facet, and you turn and see, you see another facet, we will never run out of, of facets for all of eternity of, of the fullness of God's love. Eternity is how long it's going to take. Eternity is how long it's going to take for us to adequately worship Jesus Christ for his sacrifice for sinners. Eternity is how long it's going to take for us to comprehend God's glory in its fullness. That's why the eternal word came into the world. Not just to make God's glory known for a moment. Not just for an Advent season, not just for a few Sundays every year. He came to make God's glory known forever. And by faith, he promises that someday, that's exactly what God's people will see. Won't you join me in prayer? Well, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your eternal word. Christ Jesus, our Savior, seated now at the right hand of the Father on high, interceding for us. We thank you for his gift of mercy. We thank you for your glory, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Amen.